Please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 9, 2-7 The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness. From this time forward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Let's begin our time in God's word this morning in prayer. God, we ask that as we open your word today, that as we open the book of Isaiah this morning, that as we celebrate together during this season of Advent, Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts the significance of your coming into the world, that your son would be born in human flesh to live among us and to die as one of us. God, we know that this is the answer and fulfillment of an ancient promise, and so we praise you this morning as one who keeps your promises. Be with us this morning. Open our eyes to see your glory and our ears to hear your voice. Draw our hearts near to you this morning. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. A couple of years ago, my wife Jessica and I got the chance to visit a medieval city in Europe that used to be one of the most important cities in the world because of its importance in, uh, as a part of a, a significant trade route. It doesn't have such a significant role anymore, but there are still signs that 700 years ago, it was a really important place. The most obvious of those signs is the city wall that still wraps its way around the 40,000 or so people who still live there. Those walls are impressive. They look as strong today as they did when they were finished 700 years ago. In places, they are 80 feet high and over 20 feet thick, and they are built of solid stone. They were designed to be impenetrable and able to withstand continuous and direct fire from cannons. As we walked along the city walls, it was hard to imagine anyone ever conquering that city. And as we found out, even though a lot of people tried, no one ever did. It's a fortress that no medieval threat could really challenge. Today, it stands as a relic of a distant past. No one is bombarding the walls with cannons or catapults anymore. But it also serves as a reminder of something common to people at all points in history. We are serious about safety. We go to great lengths to preserve it. We build massive walls to guard it. We fret over how we would survive if the things that we treasure are lost, and we strategize all different kinds of ways to keep them from harm. It's a characteristic that unites all of humanity across all points in history 
and it helps us understand what was happening in Jerusalem two and a half millennia ago as the book of Isaiah was being written down. The people there were scared. They looked out their windows, and they saw the largest and most vicious empire the world had ever known creeping closer and closer. The Assyrians were an unstoppable force. Everywhere they went, destruction and death followed. Already, they had decimated the nations to the east, and their warpath was aimed directly at God's people in Israel and Judah. And by the time Isaiah 9 is being written down, the very northernmost territories of Israel, called Naphtali and Zebulun, which are mentioned in verse 1 of our chapter, had already fallen. So the people were justifiably anxious. They were worried. And they set out to do everything that they could to protect themselves. Their strategy basically had three parts. First, they formed strategic alliances. They linked their arms with neighbors and paid tribute to stronger nations for protection. A little later on in Isaiah, we'll learn that they even made an alliance with Egypt, and they pay them in gold by the wagon load for protection. It's an ironic strategy. They're going back to the nation that once held them as slaves in an effort to protect their freedom. But it shows how desperate they were to safeguard themselves against the Assyrian threat that they could see on the horizon. Secondly, they built up their defenses. Like medieval walled cities, they put, up, they put great effort into building their own city walls and into sharpening their swords and training their military. They know that the day is coming when their strength will be tested, and they want to do everything they can to be prepared for that day. And thirdly, they turn toward idols. They worship gods that they themselves have made. Like every other ancient nation, the people of Israel and Judah have designed gods that suit their purposes. And now they are turning toward those idols to protect them from an invading army with idols of its own. A good portion of the book of Isaiah is dedicated to the foolishness of this idolatry. But in their despair and in their anxiety, they took to bits of wood and stone carving them into gods that they could worship and ask for protection. They are terrified, facing what they think is their greatest threat, and they have done everything that they can think of to ensure their safety. But one thing Isaiah has already made clear so far in this book is that their greatest threat is not Assyria. As we saw last week when Pastor Bruce walked us through the opening verses of this book, the greatest problem facing the people, these people in Israel and Judah, is not something on the other side of their city wall. It is their own sin, their own rebellion, their own rejection of their faithful provider, their protector, and their holy God. It is in the fact that they have put their trust in alliances and in their defenses and in the worthless idols that they have made, abandoning their relationship with God. It is in the fact that they have abandoned their calling to be a beacon of hope and light and life to the nations, leading them to abundance and blessing from God, but have chosen instead to forsake their neighbors, hating them by remaining silent about their sovereign God. And because of this, God declares in chapter 7 that he will raise up an instrument 
of judgment, a hammer in his hand that will come down hard on his people, and that hammer will be the king of Assyria. So really, what they are trying to protect themselves from is God himself and the day of his judgment. In chapter 8, God reminds his people that what they should really fear is not Assyria or any other bad guys out there, but that their dread should be God himself and the fact that he does not allow evil to go unanswered. The shadow that is descending on Israel and Judah is the darkness of God's wrath against evil. As the book of Isaiah opens, it's clear that things are bad and that they are going to get worse. That's the situation that people are living in as this passage is being written. What Isaiah refers to four times, twice at the end of chapter 8 and twice at the beginning of chapter 9, as darkness. What's interesting, to me anyway, is that the Hebrew word that's used here uh, for the, is actually four different words for darkness. They're all, they all come into English simply as the word darkness, but Isaiah chooses to use four different words for darkness. He's writing this section looking for words to capture the essence of the gloom and the despair that the people are feeling right now, and he emphasizes that point by using four separate words to get at how lost and alone and helpless they're feeling right now. Because that's how we feel when we suddenly find ourselves in the darkness. When you're someplace unfamiliar, darkness makes us feel uncertain and helpless. One word that Isaiah uses in particular captures that meaning in this passage. In our opening verse, when he tells the people, he tells us that the people dwelt in a land of deep darkness. The word darkness that he's using here is one that carries a lot more meaning than simply the absence of light. It's a word that is used in a very familiar passage, from, actually from Psalm 23, when the psalmist writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It is more than fear of the unknown. It is dread for what they know is coming. The people of Israel and Judah, watching Assyria come closer and closer, are living in the shadow of death. It is the shadow of impending doom and utter destruction. That is their darkness. They are living in a land of such darkness that they watch city after city fall to the Assyrians, knowing that their days are numbered. It's a feeling, I think, that we know to some degree. When, when, we, when what we fear is coming, and there's nothing that we can do to stop it. But in the midst of that darkness, that utter and complete and fearsome darkness, a flicker of light has appeared. Twice in the opening of our passage, we read that the darkness has begun to break. And the dread and fear that had been so complete has been cut by a sliver of light. Is it because Jerusalem's walls are strong enough to keep them safe? Or because her allies will come to her defense? Is it because the people have appeased their idols and manipulated them into actually offering them some protection? Have they come alive somehow and gained some power enough to protect these people? No. Isaiah wants everyone to know that that's not what has happened. Immediately, there are clues 
that nothing that the people have done has helped them at all. The people have seen this light. They have not made it. The light has dawned on them. They have not brought it upon themselves. In the utter darkness, under the shadow of God's judgment, Isaiah is showing us that there is a way out, and it is not by strength or cleverness. It is because of God's mercy. He will make a way for people to receive grace, and that hope is the light that has broken through. As soon as we open Isaiah chapter 9, we see that even while God is perfectly just, He is also full of grace. He does not let sin go unanswered. He does not allow evil to triumph. So his justice is real. Already in these early chapters of this book, God has made clear that his judgment will surely come. The people can see it looming, but a ray of light has broken through the night. God is working, and darkness is not how this ends. Some of you may remember a story that was in the news a couple of years ago. It got worldwide attention. What happened was uh, that a group of kids in Thailand had gone for a hike together to a well-known cave that was near to their hometown. It was a cave that they had explored before, so they felt confident as they squeezed and crawled their way over two miles into the cave. What they didn't know is that while they were inside, Monsoon season had arrived two weeks early outside, and the rain wouldn't stop for weeks. They had no clue that this was happening until the water in the cave started to rise around them, and they found themselves trapped on a sandbar deep in the cave. They had no supplies and only a couple of flashlights. And remembering the winding path that they had followed to get to where they were, it was hard for them to imagine anyone finding them. And they knew that there was no way that they could possibly swim to safety. So all they could do was wait. Before long, their flashlights burnt out, and they waited, trapped, day after day after day. And they were in utter and absolute darkness, cut off from daylight by two miles of stone. For eight days, they waited. And then, out of a complete darkness, a ray of light shined from the depths of the water around them. I can't imagine what they must have felt when they saw it. Maybe they thought their eyes were playing tricks on them at first. I mean, eight days in complete darkness. Your mind would certainly start to play tricks on you during that time. But the light got steadily brighter and brighter, coming closer and closer to the surface, and they realized that it wasn't a trick. It was not their imagination. Someone was coming to find them. That's what's happening here in Isaiah. Amid the darkness that surrounds these people, a flicker of light has appeared. And for those who look to it, they know their rescuer is coming. The people have a reason to rejoice if they will only look to the light and cling to the hope that it represents. The rest of this passage explains to us what it means that this light has dawned that this flicker of light has appeared, and then how that light will make a difference. It begins in verses 3, 4, and 5. You have multiplied the nation, Isaiah says to God. You have increased its joy. Right away, this is an interesting thing for Isaiah to say. 
He writes that the nation, uh, as he writes this, the nation is being attacked by the instrument of God's judgment. Whole cities are being carted away into exile. So it's an odd thing for Isaiah to say that God has multiplied the nation, let alone increased its joy. But it's a li- what's a little easier to see in Hebrew than it is in English is that this is such a certainty of God's plans for his people that it's described as if it is already true. So sure is God's plan to bless his people that Isaiah writes about it like it has already happened. Quickly, the dread of chapters 7 and 8 has turned a complete 180 here in chapter 9. It's not just that God is going to spare them his judgment, but apparently he intends to be exceedingly generous with them. At a point when the Assyrians are causing them to wonder if very shortly they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth, God is promising that they will someday be an even greater nation and that they will have an even greater joy than they did before. At a point when they are surrounded and afraid, God is promising that he will cause them to rejoice and that they will have abundant harvests and the spoils of victory. That, I think, would probably have been a difficult promise to believe. It would have been much easier to believe in the force of destruction that they could see out their window than the promise of blessing that God is making here in chapter 9. Maybe that's how we feel when we face destruction in our lives. When we face the loss of the things that we treasure, something that we fought to protect, or someone we love, or even the loss of our own health. In the moment, it's hard hold on to God's promises of love and protection and blessing. It's hard to hear and even more difficult to trust in God's assurances when the things that we love so dearly are crumbling before our eyes. But that is what Isaiah is encouraging the people in his city to do, to cling to God's promises in faith, relying on his faithfulness rather than their resourcefulness to deliver them from what they dread. One of the ways he does that is by reminding them of another part of the Old Testament. The book of Judges tells the story of Gideon, a warrior appointed by God to deliver his people from a threat similar to the Assyrian one that the people are facing in Isaiah 9. Gideon was the captain of an army of over 30,000 soldiers, but as they prepare for an important battle, God tells him to send all but 300 of them home. And then, despite overwhelming odds against them, they go into battle, and they defeat the Midianites who had come to wage war against them. With only 300 soldiers, they win. God gave them victory, even though they were vastly outnumbered and outmatched, and all that they had to do was trust that he would deliver them. Isaiah says, the rod of oppression you have broken, as on the day of Midian, to remind people that God is able to save even when it looks impossible. All that they have to do is trust that he will. A few will hear Isaiah and believe. One of the themes of this book is that God will preserve for himself a remnant. A small number of his people will persevere and look to him for forgiveness from their sin, for protection from the storm ahead, and to know his glory. Isaiah wants everyone listening to be those people. To put our trust in God amid the deep darkness of life, when it looks like there is no path to victory and no rescue, 
That is when we need to remember that light has shone through and hope is not lost. Because ultimately, God's promise is for more than forgiveness. It is for abundant blessing. He doesn't just tell these people that He will let them survive. He tells them that by His grace, they will abound and have great joy. They will have victory, like Gideon did. He tells them that the tools of their warfare will be broken, and the bloody garments of that painful past will be burned up. That is God's promise for all who put their trust in Him. His words here in chapter 9 echo his promise that we looked at last week when Bruce mentioned to us from chapter 2 that the people will refashion their spears into pruning hooks and their swords into plows. They will not need city walls anymore because there will not be anyone trying to conquer them. It is a promise that one day God's people will live under his rule again, protected by his strength and blessed by his affection for them. In verses 6 and 7, tell us how God will bring all of this about. To his people living in the shadow of destruction, God promises that a Savior is coming. They didn't know how he would save. They didn't know exactly when he would arrive. But they could know that he would come. They knew, they could know, that he would be able to fulfill every one of God's promises In just one verse, we learn so much about how God's people will be delivered. But it all begins with the fact that God himself will come to them in their need. Because through Isaiah, God has promised that to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. There's a lot of information about the one that God is sending contained in that verse. But if we look at the whole passage together, we see that the one who is coming is a king. In all the ways that Israel and Judah's kings have failed, this king will succeed. First, he will be called a wonderful counselor. As a leader, he will be wise and just. Isaiah says that as a counselor, he will be wonderful. Though we often use that word to describe all kinds of things that we love, the word that's used here in Isaiah 9 is a little bit more old-fashioned. We say things are wonderful when they make us happy. A book can be wonderful, a pie can be wonderful, a good night's sleep can be wonderful. Those are all things I've described as wonderful in the past 24 hours. But Isaiah's meaning is more than that kind of wonderful. The counsel, the wisdom that will come from this Savior will inspire wonder. It will be of a supernatural quality, something beyond mere human thinking. And that is because, as Isaiah says next, this Savior will be God Himself. The might and strength of God will come to the people as a rescuer comes to the aid of someone in distress. The phrase, mighty God, which Isaiah uses here, is actually a title attributed to the God of Scripture elsewhere. Actually, in the very next chapter of Isaiah, the same title will be used to describe God in a section that promises that one day he will destroy the Assyrian Empire. As their king, the Savior will do what other kings have failed to do. He will protect them. The might of God on display in this title of military strength describes him as a commander of vast heavenly armies. This is the one who will come to his people one who will come with incomprehensible strength and power and wisdom 
that will cause people to wonder. And he will be called Everlasting Father, Isaiah says. For some readers of Isaiah 9, this is a confusing and interesting comment. Does this mean that the Savior who is coming is God the Father? For those who knew, know the rest of the story, it seems like perhaps maybe Isaiah is a little confused here. But of course, nothing Isaiah is writing is coming from his own imagination. It is the work of the inspiration of the Spirit working through him. So what does this mean, that the Savior will be an everlasting Father? Well, first, that he is eternal. The Hebrew word for everlasting here is also used throughout the Old Testament to describe God himself and things like his word, which will never be destroyed. And secondly, that he will act toward his people as a loving father does, with love and patience and gentleness and a commitment to raise up his children to maturity. He will be a king who cares for his people as a father does. This is how God describes his own relationship with the Israelites. Back in Exodus, when the Israelites were oppressed by a different nation, God expressed his affection for his people by calling this nation his own son. And so in calling the Savior everlasting Father, we see something of a description of how the Savior will relate to his people as their perfect provider and defender. And lastly, he will be the Prince of Peace. For a people whose lives have been shaped by the ever-present threat of invasion, who have seen nations rise and fall, who themselves have been captured, who have sent armies off to wars that they'll never return from, this is a promise that the Savior will put an end to all of this. He will bring peace. But not only peace among people, between the armies on different sides of political and geographic disputes, this king will bring peace between people and their God, who is bringing the Assyrians to their doorstep as an act of judgment. He will conquer the greatest enemy, the root of evil and the force that has created division between God and humanity. He will be a divine peacemaker. This is what Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2, where he says that the Savior who was born tore down the dividing wall of hostility between people who are reconciled to one another and together are reconciled to God himself. These are the promises that God makes to his beleaguered people two and a half millennia ago in Israel and Judah, and today in Weston, Massachusetts. We saw last week that even though the sin of the people is great, God will make a way to bring them back to himself by grace. Now we know how he will do it by a divine Savior, God in flesh, who comes to rescue his people. This is the heart of Isaiah 9, that God will make a way for his people to receive grace and to flourish, and that he would do it through a person, a great Savior, who is their true King. He alone will be able to do what God has promised. He alone is able because he alone gives miraculous wisdom, has divine strength, the affection of an eternal father, and the ability to defeat the deepest and darkest threat to his people. The hope of all of humanity rests on the promise of this Savior, and Isaiah wants to paint a towering picture of what he will accomplish. Of the increase of his government and peace, he writes in verse 7, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
Unlike the current occupant of David's throne, the one ruling in Jerusalem as Isaiah is writing this passage, the Savior who will inherit that throne will rule with justice and righteousness. Whereas they, previous inhabitants of that throne, occupants of that throne, only thought that they were wise and thought that they were strong, this king truly will be. Though they foolishly worshipped idols and led their people further and further into the darkness of sin and rebellion, this king will be just and righteous, and he will bring them back. He will be a good king and worthy of the honor that comes with that title. And unlike the other kings who came before him, he will inherit the promise that God made to David himself, that one day his descendant would receive a kingdom that would last forever and ever and would not be afflicted or threatened ever again. His kingdom will never stop expanding. The peace of his reign will never be done increasing. It's such an incredible promise that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. But in a favorite passage of mine from one of the, one of the books of the, in the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis tried to explain what this is like. The very end after the realm has been rescued and Aslan, the great lion, has saved the day. Everyone is living happily ever after. But that was really only the beginning of the story, we read. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now they were at last beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isaiah wants the people who are dwelling in darkness to know you're only on page one of a story that goes on forever, in which every day is better and brighter than the one that came before. That promise will be repeated through this book and will even be expanded. For now, what the people of Judah needed to know and what we need to know is that God has appointed a rescuer. The promises of God are fulfilled through a promised Savior who would be born. A divine Savior in all his might would take on frail humanity and come as a helpless baby. The everlasting, glorious, and sovereign, a child among the nations that, were, that, that belong to him by rights. It is the answer to humanity's greatest need. And it is something accomplished by God himself. The final verse of our passage this morning removes all doubt. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. From the very beginning, humanity has been trying to save itself. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves and hid from God for fear of his anger. They were trying to deal with the problem of their rebellion on their own. And at every point in history since, we've been doing the same thing. We try to manage the brokenness of the world and limit its interference in our lives. We build walls to protect ourselves from threats and go to great lengths to guard what we love. We make alliances and develop strategies and turn to the idols of our day to answer our need for safety. But for all our effort and for all our strength and cleverness, we can only at our very best hold them back for a moment. The brokenness and corruption of this world will remain the inward corruption of our desire for sin remains no matter how we try to deal with it. And the judgment of God against all sin and rebellion and weakness and wickedness remains because God leaves no evil 
unanswered. The deep darkness remains. But his promise of a savior was like the first glimpse of light coming up through the depths of the water in a flooded cave. It represented the realization that the story was not over yet. And the instant that they saw it, they knew, those kids, they knew that they were not forgotten. And seeing the light grow brighter and brighter, their hearts lifted until they saw for themselves the rescue diver emerge from the water. The promise of their rescuer had finally arrived. But after making sure everyone was accounted for, uh, the rescue diver gave them a flashlight, and then he left. They were alone again. It would be almost another week before an operation was underway to actually bring the kids out of the cave safely. A whole nother week. But it was not like it was before. Because now, the boys knew that a rescuer was coming back to get them. They knew that there was a plan to bring them back to safety out of the darkness of the cave. All they needed to do was wait on their rescuer to arrive. Isaiah wants everyone listening to think like that. God is zealous for the salvation of his people, and he will do what we cannot. He alone can restore what is broken, and he alone can atone for what has been stained by sin. Our hope, our only hope, is not in our strength. It is not in our strategy to keep ourselves safe or make ourselves free. If we rely on that, the judgment of God will come with unstoppable force. But there is a rescuer, one who comes to deliver his people, not only from earthly suffering, but from his own holy and just wrath. Christmas time is when we celebrate that the rescuer has come. He is our wonderful counselor and mighty God. He is loving toward us as a loving father is and everlasting and eternal. He is the prince of peace who brings the end to hostility between humanity and our maker by receiving in our place all of God's wrath against our sin and rebellion. And he has come. Christmas is a celebration ultimately of promises kept. The people of ancient Jerusalem heard these words and waited. Their savior was coming. Now, we hear these words and wait as they did because we know that our Savior is coming back. The King is coming to rule, to bring His kingdom to earth and to sweep away all injustice and rebellion. We know that the darkness is not the end of the story. For to us, a child is born and a son is given. Those who dwelt in deep darkness have seen a flicker of light coming through. There is hope. For the ancient Israelites, it was a word of anticipation and longing for God's Savior to arrive. For us, it is a word of rejoicing that our Savior has already come, that he has already made a way for us to be brought out of darkness. So we put our trust in him this Christmas season and every day, the Savior and King who was born to dwell among us and die as one of us 2,000 years ago. Let's pray together. God, we, um, we know that Christmas time uh, is full of joy, but it can easily be full of distraction. So we ask that 
you would set our eyes on your grace and the promise of salvation that we remember this Christmas season. Help us to remember that the one born and laid in a manger 2,000 years ago was the one who came to deliver us from danger and from the just wrath against our sin by taking upon himself the guilt of those who turn toward him in faith. Cause us to rejoice this morning and every day in knowing that your promises are kept in the coming of your Son. And remind us that a light has broken through the darkness, even when we struggle to see it and lay hold of it by faith. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of your Son.